This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Welcome to Real Talk on this Monday, May 15th edition. We are two weeks away exactly from Election Day here in the province of Alberta. We've been bringing you Alberta's most real election coverage, the stuff that real people are talking about, the issues that really matter to people, and we'll continue to do so over the next two weeks. If you subscribe to our email, our weekly email, you already know, uh, for the most part, who's coming up this week. Of course, always subject to change as the news cycle can dictate, but check your inboxes for the updates. We've got two Real Talk roundtables coming up and lots to talk about, including this morning, with Charles Adler, who will be joining us in just a little bit. We're going to go to Odessa, Ukraine in a few minutes. Adam Zivo's joining us. Uh, he's been uh, corresponding from Ukraine. Uh, he's a, a columnist with the National Post. He does a ton of coverage on a bunch of different issues. He's here to talk about an issue in Canada. Uh, so this conversation's going to sort of span or cross international borders. We'll, we'll figure out why he's in Odessa but then we're going to focus on a piece that he wrote for the National Post just a short time ago. It was out last week. Drug fail reads the headlines. The Liberal government's safer supply fueling a new opioid crisis. We'll get into his extended reporting on this. He's spoken to more than 20 experts before putting that investigative piece together. On the flip side, or from a different angle, we'll talk to Guy Felicella coming up on Wednesday. Uh, he's a harm reduction uh, expert. He's got lived experience. Guy's got a remarkable story. You heard him on this show about two years ago. He's going to come back and we want him to respond to what Adam says. We want to make sure that you have the full information, the full picture as you're deciding or, or, or simply maybe establishing where your positions are on issues that matter to Canadians, on issues that matter to those around you. Fascinating polling out over the weekend it was it was out on friday as a matter of fact from abacus daddy you know david coletto he's one of the more prominent pollsters across the country and it shows that in our home province of alberta with two weeks to go to the provincial election the ndp has taken the lead we're curious for your take on this he says it's a a survey of 885 eligible voters in alberta it finds that the alberta ndp has jumped ahead of the United Conservatives, after several months of what's been described as complete deadlock, I mean, how many experts have been in, on this show and, and how many have you seen on social media, uh, pollsters, political commentators that have refrained from or refused to plant their flag to make an official prediction? Well, among all eligible voters, this polling shows that the NDP has gained seven points uh, from Coletto's last survey, last polling from Abacus data, 43% of eligible voters right now say they would vote NDP. 35% of eligible voters say that they would vote for the United Conservatives. Now, if you take the 14% of undecideds out, it changes that number and gives an even bigger lead to the NDP, which is interesting. Okay, everybody's wondering about what's going to happen in Calgary. Everybody's wondering what's going to happen in some of the rural ridings where there's really a significant horse race. But when you take out the undecideds right now, what we would describe as vote intention. In other words, if a provincial election was held today, which party would you vote for? 51%. These are the decideds. These are the people who know who they're voting for. If it was today, they know where they would place their check or their X on the ballot. 
51% say the NDP, 41% say the United Conservatives, and we'll mention that 5% say the Alberta party. Now, this has become, as I tweeted from our official Real Talk account on Friday, a referendum on Danielle Smith. If the 2019 election was a referendum on the carbon tax, this is a referendum on the United Conservative leader. And the problems continue to pile up from a PR or messaging standpoint from the conservatives. More interviews of Danielle Smith in her own words surfacing over the past few days from groups like Press Progress. And we want to credit the journalism that they're doing, but I want to give you a couple examples. Now, this one kind of still sort of does have something to do with vaccines and, and so-called lockdowns, but... But in this context, we want to play some audio for you. This is, uh, at the time, just about a month before she became Alberta's Premier, Daniel Smith talking about policing. And this is especially going to be an issue of interest, as, of course, Smith has made it very clear, though it's not in the Conservatives' election platform, as pointed out in our Alberta Municipalities Roundtable on Friday. If you missed it, you know where to find it, on our YouTube channel, wherever you get your podcasts. Those three mayors pointing out that there's nothing about an Alberta police force in the United Conservative platform this election. But that doesn't mean that the Premier doesn't have plans to shake it up, to maybe bid adieu to the RCMP. Here's Daniel Smith about a year ago. Pastors should have never been arrested. In fact, I remember being on the air because um, it was my last couple of days on the air when, uh, when Pastor Coates got arrested. And there were many people sending me criminal code um sections you are not allowed under the criminal code to disrupt a service that's a criminal code violation so i have to wonder whether or not some of those officers are the ones who broke the the uh, the law in doing so she's wondering if the officers are the ones who broke the law in other words she, she she's turning the spotlight back to the police officers this is a politician right typically there's a a pretty clear line a pretty clear barrier between elected politicians and the police. In other words, in Western democracies, political leaders aren't the ones directing law enforcement. It doesn't mean they can't comment on it, but to to essentially, subtly, or not so subtly threaten that cops could be or should be arrested, well, that's a pretty dramatic leap outside the norm. Uh, Here's Smith around that same period of time in a conversation with Bridge City News. Here's what she said. Do you believe, Danielle, that it's a good idea for Alberta to have its own police force? Is it worth the extra financial cost? Yes, and I would start it immediately for a couple reasons. We've had a lot of our frontline officers who've been fired from their jobs or put on leave because they've refused to enforce some of the draconian decisions that have come down. I talked to an RCMP officer who was supposed to be on the crew that went and arrested Pastor Coates. And he refused to do that. That's the kind of person that I want in law enforcement, somebody who will value religious rights, someone who will value our charter rights. He uh, also chose not to be to be vaccinated. And that is his right as um, a, a person who has bodily autonomy. So those are the kind of people that I want to see have jobs in law enforcement so that we can change the culture of law enforcement. OK, so she's talking about a police officer that was given orders from a superior. Right. And he refused those orders. Uh, based on his personal conviction. And she says that that's the type of person she wants in law enforcement. The type of person that's going to refuse to obey orders based on their personal conviction on an issue. That sounds to me uh, to be kind of a nightmare situation for law enforcement. Doesn't it sound like to you? Doesn't it sound like a total nightmare 
to have police officers that are being directed by politicians to do the bidding of people whose number one motivating factor is their own political survival? We'll be talking about this with Charles Adler in about 20 minutes. Adam Zevo coming up in 30 seconds. This episode of Real Talk is presented by We Know Training. It's your partner for training that matters. Let We Know Training take on your training needs so you can focus on what you do best. They're your one-stop solution partner to streamline and monetize your training, empower your learners, and move the needle on your business goals. We Know Training provides a full suite of solutions from instructional design to online training technology and from bilingual customer support to advice on scaling and monetizing your course content. They're here to support you every step of the way. You can learn more about it at weknowtraining.ca. Adam Zevo is a columnist with Canada's National Post. He's best known for his dispatches from Ukraine, as well as his commentary on LGBTQ issues. We're going to be talking about harm reduction and safer supply. But first, we've got to note that Adam's joining us this morning from Odessa, Ukraine. Adam, thanks for making time for us today. Can you tell us exactly where you are and what's taking you there? Well, so I'm in Odessa, Ukraine, which is in the southwest of Ukraine. Uh, I'm about four hours west of the front lines. Uh, the city that I'm in is safe. There's almost like two Ukraines right now. There's the frontline areas and there's the rest of the country. Uh, if you're in the rest of the country, the danger levels are equivalent to being in Israel during a hot period. Uh, I came to Ukraine about a year ago to report on the war. Uh, ended up staying partially because of love. Uh, I met my current boyfriend here. We've been living together for a year. And essentially, uh, I just stay in the country writing about issues, writing about the war, while also reporting on what's happening in Canada. What are you seeing in Odessa right now? For, for, for all intents and purposes, it sounds like there's something very unique there. This city that's that's described as as defiantly vibrant, the, the population still celebrating arts and culture, despite the fact that they're they're enduring Russian art artillery attacks. I mean, are you seeing that from where you are? Absolutely. Uh, I think one underreported aspect of this war is the defiant uh, need for normalcy and vibrancy amongst most of the country. If you're in Lviv, if you're in Kiev, if you're in Odessa, uh, you're able to live a relatively normal life, uh, relatively being the key word here. You know, we have missile strikes on occasion. Uh, I was abroad in Serbia two weeks ago seeing family. And during that period, a drone landed about a kilometer from my partner's home. It can be a little bit unnerving, but after a while you get used to it, the cafes are full, the restaurants are full. Uh, people don't really pay too much attention to the air raid sirens at this point, if they're in a safe area, that being the important caveats. But it shouldn't, you know, that shouldn't imply that there are parts of the country, you know, that there are no parts of the country that are unsafe. Anywhere in the East right now is horrific. If you're in Bakhmut, it's horrific. If you're in Kramatorsk, it's horrific. But people forget that Ukraine is a very large country and you have a diverse you have diverse ways that people can experience war. Adam, let's take our attention closer to home. Uh, this piece that you wrote in the National Post uh, came out last week. Drug fail reads the headline. The liberal government's safer supply fueling a new opioid crisis. This is long form journalism, to be sure. You speak to more than 20 experts over what I imagine was an extended period of time. 
before we get into what they're telling you, some of them uh, noting that they're afraid of consequences and blowback uh, for their testimony to you. How, how did this wind up on your radar? What was it that prompted you as an investigative journalist to put so much of your time and effort into looking into this? Well, so I've historically written about crime and community safety, uh, partially because I lived beside a homeless encampment in Toronto, which was not a great experience. Uh, I witnessed a lot of violence and had people close to me experience a lot of violence. Through that reporting, I was put in contact with a man named Dr. Julian Summers, who is a researcher based out of BC, who had written a review of safer supply literature. And he had concluded that the vast majority of the research in support of safer supply is actually uh, hot air. Uh, essentially, most of the research supporting safer supply are small-scale qualitative inter like uh, studies. So essentially, uh, glorified focus groups with Vancouver-based drug users who have a strong incentive to romanticize the program. I wrote an article about that, which came out January 1st. Uh, as a result, I was contacted by several addiction physicians who had deep concerns about the pro about the project. I initially was going to write about two or three short op-eds, but the more I researched, uh, the more I saw scandal after scandal. It was like pulling a chain and, and more things just came out. And the funny thing is that the report that you're seeing right now, the 10,000 word report is only half of my initial draft. I had 20,000 words, not a word wasted of, of just insane stuff. Um, and I realized that this is something that needs to be talked about because the opioid crisis is horrific and people are dying and we need real solutions, not safer supply. We were sitting with uh, Edmonton's mayor, Amarjeet Sohi, on Friday here in studio, and he noted that the city of Edmonton is seeing two overdose deaths every single day. I mean, as you point out, close to 40,000 Canadians have died over the past six or seven years. There's no doubt that this is a full-blown crisis and for that reason i think a lot of people most especially harm reduction experts are looking to explore every single avenue uh, so people can understand your position or where you're coming from on this w what's your position on harm reduction i mean do you see some programs or some approaches that are implemented right now that are working is it just the safer supply angle of this that you believe is ineffective right now I mean, of course, harm reduction is an essential component of combating the opioid crisis. And most of the addiction specialists who I spoke to acknowledge that and support harm reduction. But they don't feel that safer supply, as it's practiced in Canada, is an effective form of harm reduction. And I agree with them. Uh, there's different models of safer supply. There's a model that's being used in Switzerland, which seems to be fairly promising. And it's promising because there's a high barrier to entry. Uh, it's not as if anyone can get on the program and you have to earn your doctor's respect before you can take home your doses. And additionally, safer supply is coupled with strong investments into treatment. In Canada, we've basically taken the least responsible version of safer supply where it's accessible to anyone. It's completely low barrier and you can take your doses home right away with no accountability as to whether or not you actually consume your doses. Now, as a result, many people only consume a small portion of their hydromorphone. That's the opioid dispensed through safer supply. So they can pass their urine tests and then they sell the rest on the black market to purchase illicit fentanyl. So in this way, Canadian safer supply is not mitigating the fentanyl crisis. It's subsidizing it. How much of this do you think is political? You know, we, we, we've hosted political debates on this show many times and, and, and of course, 
you know, the position or at least the talking point typically from conservative politicians is that the liberal or new Democrat politicians want to, quote, give out free drugs. And I think that that plays well with the political base. But I think that it also maybe obfuscates a little bit or clouds the conversation. How much do you think is political? I think, unfortunately, drug policy has been over-politicized, and that's something that every party can be guilty of. Uh, I take issue with those who would say that opposition to safer supply is just a conservative thing. Mm. Uh, So I surveyed, actually, my interviewees uh, about their political background. I said, you know, what party do you normally affiliate with? What party did you vote for previously? Uh, I didn't find that there was an over-representation of conservatives. It was about maybe one-third. My... My most vehement, you know, uh, critics uh, were Dr. Sharon Koivu and Dr. Vincent Lamb. Both are very, very staunch leftists. Dr. Vincent Lamb is the leading critic of Safer Supply in Canada, uh, and he has written a book on Tommy Douglas, the NDP leader uh, of several decades ago. Uh, and what's odd, and what I think, you know, is very telling, is that of the addiction physicians who I interviewed, who were conservatives, many of them had only switched to conservatism recently reluctantly and with some level of bewilderment because of how egregiously drug policy has been mismanaged by the federal government. Can you tell us about the the pilot project in London, Ontario, and, and why it's so notable to this conversation? So the pilot project in Ontario has been cited as an example as a success story of safer supply. Um, unfortunately, there's no real evidence that it works. And this goes back to the idea that most of the evidence support of safe supply isn't really legitimate. Uh, so it relied on self-reported data. So essentially handling, handing out surveys uh, to participants and asking, you know, what has this program done for you? Uh, unfortunately, the program participants, you know, they have a strong incentive to give certain answers, especially if they are making money off of selling the drugs on the street. Uh, last year, the program Uh, released a study which used more objective data, drawing from Ontario's administrative uh, databases. But uh, unfortunately, what they didn't do is that they didn't make any effort to distinguish the benefits of safer supply drugs versus the other support services that are provided to program participants. If you're in the London program, you're not only getting free hydromorphone, you're also getting access to a specialized support team of doctors as well as housing support. So you would imagine that any evaluation would ask, is it coming from the hydromorphone or is it coming from everything else we're giving them? Uh, One of the Um, things. Oh, go ahead, Adam. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. I interrupted you. Well, no, I was just going to say one of the you know, one of the things that I've appreciated about your report, people can read it at nationalpost.com, is that you provide a lot of facts in an arena where I think that a lot of people's opinions are formed. I don't mean to insult you know, the general population, but I don't know that people are forming their opinions on the facts. Uh, and one example of this, I think, is is you discerning between or pointing out the differences between so-called safer supply and opioid agonist therapy. Uh, these are two different things, and people could probably feel quite differently about them or the integration of them into a harm reduction strategy. Can you clarify the difference? Okay, I'm glad you asked about this because this is very, very, very important. Mm-hmm. So opioid agonist therapy, which is called OAT for short, has been around for decades. You know, if you hear people being on methadone, that's what that is. These are long-lasting opioids, which are relatively weak and only manage withdrawal. 
So you're essentially using them to manage withdrawal symptoms so you can more easily quit using opioids. It's not supposed to replace illicit drugs. It's not supposed to make you feel euphoric. It's only for managing withdrawal. Meanwhile, Safer Supply provides drugs which are meant to get you high and approximate the experience of using illicit drugs. So it's a very, very different intended outcome here. Uh, opioid agonist therapy has been around for decades and it has a really strong evidence base. Uh, safer Supply does not. Many people will say that we've spent decades giving people safe opioids and that shows that Safer Supply works. They're actually mixing up oats and Safer Supply. Many oats physicians are really irked by that because they feel that Safer Supply is actually causing their patients to destabilize. Many of my interviewees were oat physicians who said that people were destabilizing and leaving oats because of Safer Supply. I don't want to oversimplify this, but when you're talking about one of the big problems of the Safer Supply initiative or the program, one of, one of its failings is that a lot of this so-called Safer Supply is being resold on the street. It's it's sort of fueling a different or new opioid crisis. Is it simple enough to suggest that maybe Safer Supply be consumed under supervision like a supervised consumption site? And is that a way that you think that the government could preserve the integrity of the program? Is that a step that you think could work? Or is the entire thing based on no supervision? Like how important is that as a premise of the program? The supervision is really essential, right? And that's the key difference between Switzerland and what we see in Canada. Uh, I'm not an expert in this field. I report what I know, and what I know is a very narrow area of facts. So I can't conclusively say that, you know, a supervised model would fix our, our, our system. But I think that based on my interviews, that would be one way to improve things. Um, now, what I do want to note is that a major problem with hydromorphone is that though that drug is as powerful as heroin, it fails to get fentanyl users high because it's only about one-tenth as strong as fentanyl. So fentanyl users just don't find that it's useful for them because they're looking to approximate the experience of their drug of choice. That's why they sell it on the streets in order to buy more fentanyl. If you had supervised consumption, yes, that would solve diversion to an extent, but it wouldn't solve the issue of high opioid tolerance and it wouldn't solve the fact that fentanyl users don't find the program gives them what they want. So you're talking to physicians, you're talking to law enforcement, you're talking to harm reduction experts. Did you find consensus on anything among everybody you talked to, except for maybe the fact that this is a crisis? Um, it's hard to say because this is so politicized, right? Mm -hmm. And what I can say is that there was a consensus amongst my interviewees that Safer Supply is not working. Well, I'm very aware that there's another school of thought that disagrees vehemently with that. And you can see that all over my Twitter. Um, but everyone agrees that, you know, the opioid crisis is horrific and we need to do something. We need a solution. And what we're doing right now does not work. Uh, I think that there's a fairly strong consensus that harm reduction as a general theory is important and you need harm reduction initiatives, whatever that looks like. Uh, beyond that, it's hard to say. Uh, I do want to make a point about politicization and, and facts. Uh, so there's politicization at the political level, you know, with, uh, let's say, our federal parties, but also much of our research is politicized. And uh, our addictions policymaking is controlled by a small clique of researchers based out of BC 
who, based on my interviewees, they claim that they don't produce evidence-based uh, research. Essentially, they're ideologically driven, which is why you see a low-quality evidence base that's usually qualitative for paper supply. Do you see anything? I mean, if we're talking about the politicization of this, I mean, the, the headline of your piece attributes this program to the liberals, the liberals safer supply problem. Right. Are you seeing anything from the conservatives, you know, that, that may qualify as a valid alternative? This, this isn't exactly top of the list of anything that federal politicians are talking about. It seems to be a story that's invoked when it's politically convenient. But quite honestly, I mean, and, and, and this could be you could poke more holes in this argument than Swiss cheese and trying to compare this to COVID, except for uh, both crises are claiming thousands of lives or have claimed thousands of lives in Canada. Both would qualify as a real problem. But the country doesn't seem among the general population to really be taking the opioid crisis seriously. Thus, I don't think that politicians have made it a real priority. Would you agree or disagree? It's hard to say, right? I mean, what I'll say is that people are increasingly concerned about public safety, and we feel like Canada is broken in some way. I mean, okay, hard for me to say because I've spent the past year in Ukraine, but I know from my friends that uh, apparent violence in Toronto seems to be more, more of an issue. And I think that people are aware on some level that homelessness and public safety are connected to uh, substance use issues. Of course, that's not the only factor. We have to think about uh, housing and affordable housing, lack of affordable housing being a significant part there. Uh, but I think the thing with safer supply, so the liberals don't want to talk about it too much because uh, they, they don't want it, they don't want it to be criticized. That's my perspective. Uh, the conservatives, you know, they've wanted to criticize it. You saw it being criticized in the autumn, but there was a lot of pushback because people were telling Polyev that he was just earmongering. And at the time, there wasn't strong enough evidence base for him to, you know, back up his claims, partially because addiction physicians were scared of speaking out. Now that my expose has come out and validated a lot of the claims that were made last autumn, now you're seeing a rise in conversation around safer supply. Did any of your interviews or did in bigger picture you putting this piece together, did it change your mind? In any context, did you change your position on this from the beginning of your first interview to the point that you submitted the piece for the National Post editors to review? Yeah, I mean, you know, I felt like I gained a more nuanced understanding of drug policy. Um, and I understand that there's, you know, I, I was more skeptical of harm reduction before I started writing. Now I'm more open to different forms of it. And though I'm highly opposed to this specific harm reduction intervention, uh, I'm eager to see Canada explore other kinds of harm reduction, which could be more effective, whatever that looks like. Where do you think this conversation is going to go in Canada over the next couple of years? We're, we're not talking about a federal election yet. I mean, a lot of our attention in this part of the country, obviously, is on Alberta's election right now. And there's some talk about harm reduction. There's been some uh, conversation about policy and how it would differ between the political parties. But federally, I can see this becoming more of an election issue, especially depending on on what happens over the next couple of years. And quite frankly, I hate to put it as cold as this, but 
what the death toll is looking like. I, I don't suspect, and I hate to say it, I don't suspect that the trend will be reversed anytime soon. You talk to anybody in this space, that's what they'll tell you as well. Uh, they work out of, out of a desire to preserve human life and dignity. They're trying to save lives on a daily basis, and they do. But none of them will tell you, and I shouldn't speak on behalf of anybody, but I haven't heard anybody tell me that they think that we're on our way out of this. Where do you think the national conversation goes between now and the next federal election a couple of years from now? You know, I, I think the opioid crisis is only going to get worse because we haven't given it enough attention and we haven't invested significantly enough into saving people's lives. But I think that in the next year or two, we're going to see inquiries into safer supply and we're going to see lawsuits from people who have been harmed by it. And when I say people who have been harmed by it, uh, one thing that hasn't come up in our conversation yet is that a lot of the hydromorphone, which is being sold on the street, is being purchased by youth and it's being marketed to people who are struggling with addiction recovery. Those people are being dragged back into addiction and they don't often die from the safer supply itself. Uh, but what happens is that once they're using hydromorphone, they eventually graduate onto fentanyl, which then kills them. And you know, people who have been dragged back into addiction or their families, I think, are probably going to launch a lawsuit against the Canadian government or the BC government, much in the same way how the victims of the Oxycontin crisis of the late 90s and 2000s sued Purdue Pharma. The parallels there are, are very, very strong. Adam, I want to thank you for making time to talk to us today. It's a, it's a conversation that that is incredibly important. I mean, people are losing their lives. Families are being torn apart i mean it's you know inaction in a number of different contexts is very relevant right now and people need information whether or not they're going to agree with or see eye to eye with all of the observations and the facts that you're presenting is maybe a different conversation but you're never going to find consensus uh along those lines we appreciate you shaping or forming this conversation for us and certainly giving us something to chew on this week thanks for making time for us most especially considering where you are right now in odessa ukraine Thank you for having me. You got it. That's Adam Zivo. Uh, you can read his report, Drug Fail, uh, at nationalpost.com. You can follow him on Twitter at Zivo Adam. Of course, we'll have more information in the show notes on the podcast and on YouTube. And don't forget, coming up on Wednesday on the show, we'll get a different take on this. I don't know exactly how different because we haven't talked to him yet, but Guy Felicella will join us, uh, formerly. Uh, someone who, who found himself in the throes of addiction. His personal story is a remarkable one, and now he's dedicated. I mean, it's his life's work uh, as a harm reduction and recovery advocate. That's coming up on Wednesday's episode of Real Talk. Charles Adler, the titan of talk, coming up in just a second. We want to let you know that these conversations happen because we've got amazing sponsors like our friends at Friesen Brothers who want to let you know about a one-day-only sale. This is coming up on May 18th. On May 18th, Friesen Brothers presents the Chicken and Ribs Sizzlin' Sale. This is only in Edmonton, Fort Saskatchewan, and Stony Plain. It's a one-day sale on Chicken and Ribs. Just in time for May Long. That's right, the long weekend is looming. You can find out more at Friesen.com slash barbecue season. Plus, a quick note, the garden centers are now open at Friesen Brothers. More than more than half the plants they sell at their garden centers are actually grown right here in Alberta. That means they're perfectly suited for the Alberta weather. Even the potting soil is made right here in Alberta. Johnny, you have a green thumb? No, it's... <laughs> no. No. <laughs> yeah, me neither. I'm not in charge of any of the gardening at our house, and that's for very good reason. I was trying I'll to think you. of... 
what the color is for someone who's the bad opposite at gardening. Of green? <laughs> bad probably, at gardening. probably, yeah. I don't know. I don't whatever know that color is, yeah, I've got whatever it. that color is. It's sort of more of like a yellowish wilted thumb. Yes. Oh, I hate to put it that way. Hey, are you a professional engineer in Canada, or maybe you're on your way to becoming one? Maybe your third, fourth year engineering student, and you want to launch your career with a company that gets where the industry is going. May we invite you to check out apexautomation.ca. They're hiring right now. You can learn more on their website about what a job could look like joining their team. Now, why Apex Automation? Well, there's a ton of reasons why their quality is superior to most. That includes investing in labs in their office for testing all the software and hardware before it gets deployed to client sites. They bring their clients into the office for training to make sure everybody understands how everything works. Might sound obvious, but not everybody does that. And they've even built a shop for their team to stage hardware for like robotics and electrical panels. I've seen it, the autonomous vehicles in motion through that testing phase. In particular, when I was there, it, it was this sort of cart set up for potash mining in Saskatchewan. They were showing me how those would move, controlled by humans using automation. It's fascinating stuff. Kickstart your career in engineering today by visiting apexautomation.ca and Man, oh man. Speaking of May long weekend, how many of you are going to be enjoying the great outdoors? My guess would be most of us, but some of us are going to be looking around our outdoor spaces and realizing there's, uh, how do we put this gently? Room for improvement. Uh Uh-huh. Room for improvement. Well, if you need to bring your outdoor space to life, there's nobody that does it better than Eden Landscaping. Eden Landscaping has been bringing outdoor spaces to life for more than 20 years. Things like retaining walls, water features, outdoor kitchens, pergolas, gazebos. These words are just so fun to say, John. You can get a quote today by getting in touch with Mike and his team. Browse their portfolio. Get a better sense of what they do at uh, rather Landscape Edmonton. .ca. That's Eden Landscaping, a proud partner of Real Talk. Well, of course, everybody's going to be talking uh, these days about the Alberta election uh, coming up in two weeks from now and polling suggesting that the NDP's taking a lead. I was down in Calgary for Mother's Day. No, you and don't say. In particular, in the, the political, the conservative political hotbed of South Calgary, mm-hmm. Southeast Calgary. And if you look at some of the polling, you will note that South Calgary still appears to be intending to vote strongly conservative. Mm-hmm. And uh, I saw the evidence. You can't base everything on lawn signs, but I did see a whole bunch of blue and not as much orange. Now, what we're showing our YouTube viewers right now is... Uh, is a mapping that's been done based on that polling from David Coletto Mm -hmm. and Abacus Data. And it's showing, obviously, I shouldn't say obviously, but it's showing that the city of Edmonton is looking like it's going to be going strongly orange. It looks like the rural parts of the province, maybe save where those eastern slopes are. You see that that interesting development? It's starting to look a little bit orange on that southern border between Alberta and B.C., Mm -hmm. seeing some interesting trends developing in central Alberta and, of course, north Calgary. Uh, but these are the, uh, the the polls that, of course, people are starting to pay attention to because we're getting closer and closer to Election Day. 
Now, these are the battlegrounds, and I think it's pretty significant to see voter intention in Calgary starting to change. This is going to be quite a bit opposite, I would suspect, to what the conservatives were anticipating when they were talking about this big arena deal. I mean, the whole point was that they were looking to sweep Calgary or get as close as they could to making a big, big impact down in Calgary because you got to win two of the three, Edmonton, Calgary, and the rural parts of the province. But if you can't do that, if you can't secure Calgary and the rural areas, well, this is going to come down to a real horse race, and that's the way that it's looking like it's going to go. We want to know where you're standing on this. We want to know exactly where your voter intention is, and you can help us shape some of our voter intention. You can, you can help us understand exactly where you're going with that our commentary on it our understanding of it we want our conversations here on the show to reflect the reality of this audience and the reality of how albertans are feeling a big part of that is conversations with the experts coming up on thursday our group chat roundtable returns to real talk these are political strategists these are People that have been campaign managers, presidents of political parties, including the Progressive Conservative Party, formerly in Alberta. That's coming up on Thursday. On Friday, the return of the strategists. That's going to be our Friday roundtable. And Johnny, that's the day after the debate. The televised debate Mm -hmm. is coming up this Thursday. We'll Mm -hmm. be bringing you some of the, the really significant moments from that debate. And then we're going to be getting that in front of our strategists you know them of course one of canada's best political podcasts and we always have a lot of fun with them every monday we're joined by charles adler the titan of tuck the emmy award-winning broadcaster and of course that includes today johnny let's uh let's roll out the red carpet shall we (laughs) here's the deal let me just say this clearly as i can i want my country back agreeing on the facts People choose bullshit over reality. And this is nothing with right wing, left wing. This is about substance. I'm not trying to create conspiracy theories. Put facts on the table. The people who run that shit show don't really have rules. The rules change. They represent us. What you do is you persuade the audience that you've got a better idea. Stop the madness and start doing your job. Charles Adler. Mondays, only on Real Talk. And that's as close as we get to a red carpet for you, pal. It's nice to have you back here on the show. I've done a lot of shitty shows, but I've never done a shit show. <laughs> Stop well the madness. Said. Stop, Stop the, madness. the madness. By the way, why am I not one of the strategists for... Sorry. For, for Pete's sake. I almost said the other word. For Pete's sake. Why am I not a strategist? Because you've always been front-facing. You, you've always been the one in front of the microphone. You've always been the one providing your analysis. You've, as, right. far as, as far as I know, you've never... Have you ever advised or strategized for a campaign? <laughs> well, let me, let me give you the most honest answer I could possibly give. I have been invited to do that by several parties, provincial and federal, over the years. And it's one of the things that I have chosen not to do. And I have, I have no idea how life uh, would, ha- would have changed uh, had I done it. But uh, thankfully, because of 
whether it's the people in Alberta or the rest of Canada or the United States for that matter, um, the folks have, have given me a, a much better living than any human being deserves. And so I've never had to resort to traveling to the dark side, as it were. <laughs> the dark side. Okay, well, listen, I want to put a couple of uh, things in front of you today, storylines involving both parties. I want to talk about some video of Danielle Smith in her own words. None of this is from 30 years ago. Uh, and then I want to put a book in front of you from a former guest on this show. He's running for the NDP, Kevin Van Tegum. He's the former superintendent of Banff National Park uh, and the UCP, strongly criticizing some of his comments on the energy industry. But first, I want to ask you about polling. This is from David Coletto, Abacus Data. This is a reputable polling firm. It shows that the current provincial vote intention right now, as of Friday anyway, this past Friday, was 51% for the NDP, 41% for the United Conservatives, including uh, the NDP gaining significant ground in Calgary. How much attention do you pay to polls two, week out, two weeks out from an election? I pay a, a, a little bit of attention, uh, but but not, not, not a whole lot because different polls uh, tell you different things. I guess uh, some of the trends that uh, Coletto is showing, I mean, some of it is uh, significant in, in in the big cities, including Calgary, and yes, most of the suburbs. Uh, the Danielle Smith thing is uh, just not happening. Uh, you know, when you fir- first asked me about what the ballot issue would be several weeks ago, this this strategist who does not work for political parties, okay, told you that uh, everyone's in some kind of muddle about what the ballot uh, question will be. Uh, but to, to me, there was no question about what the ballot question would be. It would be, do you want Queen Danielle for another four years. That that's the issue. And uh, as as more and more information comes out, in her own words, uh, the more turned off conservatives get by you know what what they're seeing from from Danielle Smith. I mean, no 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 conservative in their right mind uh, wants the, uh, uh, the the military to take over. Uh, you know, public health. Uh, no no conservative in their right mind wants a, a bunch of police officers. Um, being arrested because uh, they were enforcing the law, doing their jobs. I mean, it goes on and on and on. Every day uh, there is another kind of whack job uh, comment uh, coming out uh, from from Danielle Smith. And not from uh, 10 years ago or 100 years ago, but from months ago or a year ago. I mean, recent stuff that's indisputable. And so this is embarrassing the hell out of moderates and conservatives. I'm putting the, the NDP base aside here, okay? Never been part of that. Uh, moderates and conservatives drive elections everywhere, including the Calgary suburbs. And if you embarrass the hell out of them, if they, they feel that my province, my beloved Alberta, is going to be embarrassed by having this blah, 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 blah uh, in the corner office in Edmonton, then some of them will stay home, no doubt about it. And some of them may vote for other parties. Some of them may vote for the NDP. But the point is, they're not going to turn out for the UCP. Well, and this is what one of the reasons why I'm so fascinated by pe- people can check out our episodes from last week, including our conversation with you, where we ask, is Daniel Smith toast? Because we're, we're hearing from people, uh, people that claim to have heard this at their front door, that conservative door knockers, United Conservative Party volunteers are saying, vote for the party, not the leader. They're all but implying that the leader has a shelf life, that the leader has an expiry date. And that's a bizarre type of scenario to be in where you're encouraging people to to just give us a shot and we promise to get rid of the leader that's currently leading us into the election. Once again, I mean, how desperate does it get? 
I'm an ML, I'm a, an MLA or someone who wants to be an MLA, and I'm knocking on your door and saying, please vote for me. If you do, I promise to cut the throat of my leader. Yeah. I mean, come on. See, I mean, once again, you, you can't, you know, Alberta's got this reputation, unfortunately, and I've done my best to try to get get rid of that reputation everywhere I've spoken in, in this country, including a national radio mic. The people in Alberta are a little bit eccentric. But yes, they are risk takers. But this is well beyond risk taking. This is this is Thelma and Louise stuff. Albertans do not want to drive off the goddamn cliff. Chuck, we're going to talk about the policing stuff in just a minute. Uh, notably absent, it is uh, the initiative for a provincial police service from the United Conservative platform. But Daniel Smith's on the record within the last year saying it would be one of her first steps. It would be one of her top priorities. So we can't ignore it. But you can't deny healthcare is arguably, I mean, maybe inflation, cost of living, and, and always the economy, but healthcare is certainly uh, top of the list for a lot of voters with regards to the, the policy that they're looking for and their top priority, right? Uh, there's this video that surfaced in the fall of 2021. This is October 2021, not an eternity ago, uh, where Daniel Smith is talking about healthcare solutions. I'm going to get to your take on it in just a second, but first let's set the table. Here's the context. Here she is in her own words. And I think that there's a real role for leadership here because what I've observed, and for those who don't know my history, I've been in public policy research for 25 years. I mean, this is part of the frustration I have is everything I'm talking about today, I was writing and talking about 25 years ago. Nothing's changed. The solutions have stayed the same, but nothing's changed. Now you tweet, <laughs> she says she has changed her mind. What does this have to do with a, a running moose? Take this, take us into this. Sorry, I'm sorry. Let me get, let me get, let me get a hold of myself here. Uh, the, the, the folks, the 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 idea is not uh, for, for for me to lose it here. It's just that I, I'm, how do you just as an Albert, your fifth generation Albertan, how do you look at that clip and not feel that marking an X beside a UCP name is insulting your intelligence? I mean, you know that that's that that really becomes the question. It's not. I mean, how can you look at that? I mean, no, no, nobody's got a gun to her head when she's saying that, and that was not said a hundred years ago. The thing that's, I mean, everybody's just tweeting. Everyone just says, there's always a video. There's always a video. And and you get to the point where you just, I mean, I, I you and I have been in the same position as provocateurs, uh, you know, audience builders. And uh, she had a base from which she was building a big audience. And now all this stuff's coming back to haunt her. And you, and you got to wonder which one might be the death knoll. And I think once you start talking about selling off hospitals, that's when the moderates are going to start dropping. Of course, of course. Look, and arresting arresting cops for 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 doing their jobs, uh, you know, putting the military in charge of public health. Look, uh, Ryan, I know what it's like to be a provocateur, and so do you. But we also know body language. When you look at her body language throughout these tapes, she's not trying to provoke anything. She's not pushing buttons. She's thinking out loud. That's what she's doing. It's an MRI on her thought process. And while her IQ is fine, and as I've said a million times, she's more intelligent than the average person, her thinking is disordered. I don't know why it's disordered. It's above my pay grade. But you cannot trust someone with disordered thinking during an emergency, especially a public health emergency, because you're not likely 
to get the right kind of direction. Not to mention the fact that when you've got a person with chaotic thinking, it unleashes the chaotic elements in society. You know, like the kind of guys who want to, you know, convoy themselves behind the, the lines of a wildfire uh, because they've got all kinds of conspiracies in their heads. All of that chaotic thinking is enabled when the leader is chaotic. We opened the show today uh, playing some video. And, Johnny, let's load those again. First off, the, the, the interview in the leather chairs. I mean, uh, Daniel Smith at this time, this is about a month out from her win uh, as United Conservative leader and as premier of Alberta. And she, she's talking about the police. And it's in the context of a provincial police force, in the context of her observations of the law being enforced uh, during the pandemic, r- relating specifically to pastors that were gathering their congregations, defying public health orders against those types of mass gatherings. And as a reminder, here's what she said. Pastors should have never been arrested. In fact, I remember being on the air because um, it was my last couple of days on the air when, uh, when Pastor Coates got arrested. And there were many people sending me criminal code um sections you are not allowed under the criminal code to disrupt a service that's yeah. a criminal code violation yeah. so i have to wonder whether or not some of those officers are the ones who broke the the uh, the law in doing so people sending her observations about criminal code you and i were both privy to listener text lines while we were on the radio people send us all kinds of yeah. things, including their yeah. interpretations of the criminal code. Very few of them make any sense. And to suggest, number one, that commanding officers in law enforcement in Alberta and across the country don't understand the criminal code before giving their orders. And number two, that individual officers should be using their own interpretations of the criminal code or their own personal convictions about specific scenarios to determine or decide whether or not they will follow the orders of commanding officers is a huge red flag this one to me is arguably the worst video so far it it is look um that that that's the whole point i mean if you're the ceo of the government of alberta you should have some sensitivity about justice about criminal justice uh this stuff you know i i've said elsewhere you know that when she says these things, it's so similar to when I, I bend over backwards to be as tolerant as possible, especially during a pandemic. People are isolated. They're feeling locked down. They're feeling persecuted. They're alone. They're depressed. They're drinking. They're doing drugs. They're doing all that. So when they're calling in with this stuff, the stuff that Danielle Smith is talking about, when they're calling in with their interpretations of the criminal code, I mean, all I can do is basically say, you know, thank you, Elmer. Please be nice to the wildlife. I mean, th- that's how I've got to deal with it. But I don't expect Elmer to become the premier. Right. Please be nice to the wildlife. I've got a whole other intro of clips already today from the show for Madler. Yeah, this is good. Chuck, we can... Am I giving you too much? No, Johnny, no you're not. We, a hard time. And just, I don't want to be giving you too many choices. No, and just so you know, Charles, depressed, alone, drinking, and doing drugs, that, that's me every day. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> Make sure you pull the Thelma and Louise quote. That's a good one for sure. But, but, 
But in all seriousness, though, this, yeah. this is the type of thing that, that people are going to start sort of wondering how serious she is. Like, let's let's tee up the second clip with her interview with right. Bridge City News. This isn't 20 years ago. OK, here's where she states that this is something that she's serious about taking action on. Now, again, conspicuously absent from the conservative platform. But we've seen politicians, including the NDP, take Big steps on legislation that they didn't campaign on, right? The shoe's got to fit both feet. Here's Danielle Smith again. Enforcement goes, do you believe, Danielle, that it's a good idea for Alberta to have its own police force? Is it worth the extra financial cost? Yes, and I would start it immediately for a couple reasons. We've had a lot of our frontline officers who've been fired from their jobs or put on leave because they refused to enforce some of the draconian decisions that have come down. I talked to an RCMP officer who was supposed to be on the crew that went and arrested Pastor Coates, and he refused to do that. That's the kind of person that I want in law enforcement, somebody who will value <laughs> religious rights, someone who will value our charter rights. He uh, also chose not to be to be vaccinated, and that is his right as um, a, a person who has bodily autonomy. So those are the kind of people that I want to see have jobs in law enforcement so that we can change the culture. I want to hire cops who don't enforce the law. Yeah, I want to hire cops who refuse vaccines because they're into bottling autonomy. I'm, I'm sorry, this is space cadet stuff. There's, there's no way I can sit here and be nice and, and moderate and cool about this. Yes, I can laugh, but it's not funny. No, it's not funny at all. And and I know that we have fun with this kind of stuff because it's it's so outrageous. But the fact of the matter is, is that given a mandate over four years, uh, this is the type of thing that could be a real problem. We have a, a commenter in our live chat right now that says, you know, in their opinion, uh, Jason Kenny mismanaged the pandemic, they say. But imagine what it might have looked like under Danielle Smith. I mean, you would literally have a political leader that would be fighting with Ottawa, that would be refusing to implement uh, any sort of public health mandate, and that would be applauding police. Uh, first of all, that would be expecting that she should be commanding law enforcement and directing law enforcement, which is uh, like, I'm, I, 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 you know what? I can't stand when... When, when big labels are applied undeservingly, right? When somebody says that person's a Nazi or that person's a fascist and they don't really understand the word and the word doesn't fit and it's actually a huge insult to anybody whose family fell victim to the Nazi regime and to the Holocaust. It, you, you and I have spoken about this many times. But there is a word for a political leader that believes, and I'm not going to about to sit here and say Daniel Smith is a dictator, but if you want to look at a political structure where the leader, the political leader, believes that they direct the military, right, the armed forces, law enforcement, that's not how democracy works. Right. You didn't see Justin Trudeau commanding the Ottawa police in their response. You didn't see Doug Ford doing it either. You didn't see the mayor of Ottawa doing it at that time either. You certainly didn't see Premier Jason Kenney trying to command the RCMP or command the Edmonton Police Service in any way, shape or form. You just don't see it. And that, I think, is something that people need to pay very close attention to when you start talking about whether or not it makes sense for Alberta to move to a provincial police service or whether it makes sense to move away from the RCMP. We talked to Jackie Clayton. Okay, Grand Prairie's mayor. They want a city police service. They want to move away from the RCMP. Her and Councillor Dylan Bressy, people can check out our archives, make a compelling argument for it. None of it, none of their argument was based on the fact that they want the mayor and council to be directing law enforcement. And none of it has anything to do with them applauding individual police officers refusing to take orders. Right. There's a huge difference here where this conversation is going. So, look, uh 
you probably never expected me to say something like this, but I have to because we're we're getting to a critical stage in this campaign. Danielle Smith, okay, everyone knows how I feel about Jason Kenney. Okay, it's it's not good and it's not healthy. So we'll we'll set the table with that. I, I'm not a fan of, of Mr. Kenny. Okay. I was for many years, no longer. All right. Danielle Smith makes Jason Kenny look like Winston Churchill. Mm-hmm. Period. You cannot you cannot extol the virtues of police officers who don't follow the law, who have their own interpretations of the law. The the last time we spoke about Danielle Smith, we we talked about her refusal to wear the poppy. Okay. Uh, she wasn't happy with where things were with respect to COVID. And so she was going to disrespect the fallen, Canadian fallen, by not wearing the poppy. Can you imagine what would have happened to this planet had our soldiers and the soldiers of our allies followed their own rules in the battlefield, interpreted their way of fighting the war instead of following the commands that they got? Can you imagine how, I have to use the word here, can you imagine how beneficial that would have been to our enemies, including mm -hmm. World War II? The Nazis. The Nazis would have loved it if the soldiers had behaved in the Daniel Smith way of behaving. And that is interpreting the laws for yourself, deciding for yourself, being autonomous, being sovereign over how you behave. I'm sorry, she has no concept of chain of command, and she has no concept of what the responsibility of the CEO is of anything, but especially the government of Alberta. We've got a viewer by the name of Final Buzzer on the uh, YouTube live chat that says, I just want to know that when the next crisis comes along, that our province won't think that every Albertan should just do their own thing. <laughs> and I think that that's a pretty bang on <laughs> comment. <laughs> I, I honestly, I know I remember, that. Remember, remember I, you, were, you were just a kid when I got into, in, into the business 100 years ago, but one of the people that I worked with who was a Westerner and basically was the one who told me, go to Alberta, son, because I had some choices. I was very fortunate, had some choices as to where to start my career and speak into a live mic. And he was a Western Canadian. And he said, one of my choices was Calgary. He said, go West, go West, because that's where you're going to find out immediately whether or not you're connecting with real people. And I took his advice. His name was Donnie Burns. He used to end every single show with, with a mantra in those days that made sense, that does not make sense for government. And here's how Donnie would end every single show. If it feels good, do it. Now, if it feels good, do it. Made some sense to people who were smoking stuff in the 60s and 70s. May make sense to people who are smoking stuff right now. But when the Premier of Alberta is making decisions, you don't want her to just make those decisions based on her immediate feelings. If it feels good, do it does not work. It is not an operating procedure for the CEO of any government in a democracy. Chad's watching right now. He says, I'd love to see a shattering of the United Conservative Party so we can go back to having progressive conservatives and then some other party to let all the alt-right crazy pants folks go hang their hat. Uh, you wonder, you know, depending on what happens with this election, if that might exactly be the case. 
Um, by the way, I'm noting Tash Carradine, Rick Peterson, all of them. I mean, you and I could talk about a thousand things every Monday. Um, they're starting to float the idea of actually turning that center ice Canadians movement into a new federal party. And that's something that you and I will keep an eye on in, uh, in weeks and months to come. I want to talk about, uh, is it scandal? Nah, it's not. Well, whatever. Let me ask you about this. Okay. NDP candidate, Kevin Van Tegum is running in the southern part of the province. He's the former superintendent of Banff National Park. He's authored, you know, 20 some books and he's been on this show several times. He's being criticized by uh Jason Kenney's former lieutenant, by Jason Nixon who's running in 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 Rocky Mountain House, Sundry Rocky Mountain House again, uh for some essay entries that Kevin wrote in one of his books back in the day. Uh, the book is called Wild Roses Are Worth It: Reimagining the Alberta Advantage. Uh, it's a series, a collection of essays, uh, and and I wanted to read a portion. Now, he's being criticized for essentially calling Albertans rednecks and hillbillies and describing uh, the energy industry as uh, slavery and the workers as slaves. And uh, we'll get to his apology for that. He walked it back a little bit over the weekend. But, but I want to actually read. You and I have the luxury of having as much time as we want for these conversations. So I want to read a portion of I'm obviously not going to read the whole book here. I'm not going to read a ton, but listen to this. This is Kevin Van Tegum from his book, Wild Roses Are Worth It. Quote, I never was all that fond of the oil era. I didn't like what the fevered pursuit of energy riches did to the good country into which I was born. The unreclaimed seismic lines, roads cutting deep into once pristine valleys, the stench of sour gas and the gas flares that reddened the night sky for half my life. I didn't like how the lure of oil money made kids, here it is, drop out of high school and hurry off to the oil camps to make it big, giving up on the acquisition of knowledge and absorbing instead the prejudices of their mostly male co-workers. I didn't like those big muscle trucks, off-highway vehicles and monster boats or the brash, entitled culture that increasingly took over from the more humble and community-centered values of the grown-ups I'd known in my youth. It was all the other things about Alberta that I liked, things that unfortunately tend to get crowded out by oil and the greed it inspires. In fairness, though, writes Kevin Van Tegum, I profited from it. Oil revenues built the human infrastructure that made things possible for my generation, the schools, roads, trails, parks, and that's a conundrum. As an Alberta baby boomer, I'm the product of privilege, no matter how much I might prefer to disdain it. It's a difficult tension that can make it hard to hold firm opinions, but I do. He goes on to say, I tried my hand at investigative journalism, reflective essays, and conservation polemics. Then in 1998, a new magazine appeared on Alberta newsstands that filled a gap. It was Jackie Flanagan's labor of love, Alberta Views. By the way, the promo code AVRJ saves you 50% off a one-year subscription at albertaviews.ca. That's not Van Tegum, that's me. Back to him. Jackie says she launched the magazine to counter stereotypes about Alberta, that this is a place of rednecks and big trucks spending oil money on toys and sneering at everyone else in the country. Instead, her new magazine dealt with questions of social justice, environment, the arts and letters, progressive thought, and critical analysis. It was a magazine that reminded us all that we still have wild roses, that their sweet and subtle nectar can overwhelm and outlast even the strongest of diesel fumes. That's Kevin Van Tegum in Wild Roses Are Worth It. So the United Conservatives have demanded an apology from Van Tegum for describing energy workers as slaves. Uh, I think of Andrew Nikiforik's book, The Energy of Slaves. 
And of course, Van Tegum has responded over the weekend, uh, tweeting there's been some attention on words I wrote some years back. Everybody's insights evolve. I've been talking to hundreds of people in this province. People in Alberta rely on oil and gas. We need to build a future where we maximize its value to our economy. Oil was a vital part of our past. It will be a vital part of our future. I'm proud to be part of a party that actually delivered the first pipeline to Tidewater in 50 years. Some of Van Tegum's supporters are criticizing him, Charles, on Twitter for putting that apology out there. What do you make of this story? How bad is this for the NDP? How bad is it for Kevin Van Tegum? Or is it not bad at all? Let me stipulate that I love the smell of diesel in the morning. <laughs> smells like freedom. I don't know how, how, how bad it is for them. There are, are so many Albertans who have the same point of view. They're, they're, look, there they're are people who love to eat steak, but they're, they're never going to kill a cow. They're never going to process uh, cows. You know, some, someone's got to do it. They don't want to look at it. They don't want to deal with, with, with the process. They just like the outcome. There are many people in Alberta who don't like the look of the oil industry and how it's done, but they sure as hell enjoy the benefits. So in, in many ways, when I hear you, you know, discussing his own writing and how he's, he's processing his mind, he's processing out loud what so many people in Alberta feel. Now, calling energy industry workers slaves is just, you know, silly. I mean, that's just a, that's just a, a silly thing to do. I don't know, I don't know precisely what he was thinking, but uh, to say that it's over for the NDP because uh, this very, very literate person who's clearly evolved over the years and has been doing a lot of thinking out loud uh, said what he said. I mean, I, I don't, I don't see this as destroying the NDP. And of course, when I look at his thinking overall and compare it to the disordered thinking of the person who wants to be the premier the next four years. I mean, I just, I just see this as pretty benign stuff. Uh, Lorraine is chiming in on our chat. She says, I'm proud to be supporting uh, and volunteering with Kevin Van Tegum. He's the best choice says Lorraine for Livingstone McLeod. Dennis just says, Kevin's a good man. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think that uh, on some of his observations, like it or not, I, I mean, nobody likes to be referred to as a, as, well, I mean, whatever. Some people love being referred to as rednecks, but nobody loves to to, to sort of be smeared uh, for their choice of profession, for the choice of fashion, for that matter, for their choice of what they drive. But a lot of what he's saying isn't wrong, right? Like, I mean, I, like I spent a lot of time, you know, I mean, I, I love the city of Red Deer as an example. Uh, we stopped in Red Deer last night on our way back to Edmonton from Calgary to get gas, and to grab a coffee. And I wanted to drive my seven-year-old past the radio station where I launched my career. We had a moment in the parking lot, all right? I love Red Deer. And I'm excited to be going down there this summer. But if you were to suggest that a lot of people in Red Deer drive big, jacked-up F-350s, roll coal down Gates Avenue, have you know the telltale circles in their back pockets from their chewing tobacco where their cowboy bite boots 12 months a year and make their money in oil and gas six figures with a high school diploma you'd be right 
Well, these are these are, look. I mean, it's I not an insult. This. It's a fact. It's well, an observation. I, I, I got I got to say, you know, uh, kisses, kisses to all those people that you're talking about. They were my most loyal listeners. Absolutely. Okay? Red Deer has been very good to my life, and I'll be damned if I stab the people who've been so good to me in the back. Nobody I mean, wants you to. It's 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 not it's not happening. It's just it's not going to happen. I love these guys, but they exist. Calling a spade a spade is not a crime. No, they 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 love those trucks. Hell, Ryan, we love those trucks. <laughs> I mean, is that let's just put you know this is real talk, right? I mean, how many buzzes are bigger than than, than driving a three fifty? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I'd love to be able to drive a Kenworth. It would be irresponsible for me to do so. So I just like sitting beside my buddies who are driving the, the Kenworths and the and the Peterbilts. I mean, I just I just love that. But I, I can do a three fifty, and I've driven a three fifty. I mean, look, there. We I don't want to get into the the gun thing too deeply here, okay? Uh, because we we know about the stories, whether they're from the states or Canada. You know, they're they're horrific. I'm not I'm not sitting here um, extolling the virtues of, of shooting, but any of us who have just been in a in a safe situation in a in a shooting gallery uh who have who have uh, shot a gun we understand that there is a certain amount of exhilaration that can happen naturally you've got to control uh, your your temperaments you've got to control your impulses i'm not i'm not extolling the virtues of, of people who have all sorts of ideological illness and mental illness and and and, and take this thing uh, to places that the devil won't go. But it's undeniable that just regular people in shooting galleries or sports shooting do enjoy the thrill of it. And for people to deny that there is a thrill in getting behind the wheel of a 350, I'm sorry. I mean, I, I, I'm not here to, to deny the undeniable. I mean, I, I, I don't want to live on the, the planet Skullfuck. I want to live on the planet Earth. I want to be honest with you. And it's true, yes, some of the things that I say, if you want to take them out of context, you can portray me as a nut job. Go ahead. Fill your cowboy boots. Fill your shit kickers all you like. I'm simply telling the truth. Driving a 350 is an unreal experience. It is fantastic. And I applaud the people of Red Deer. And if some other people want to make fun of them, whether they're in Alberta or elsewhere, that's on them. I love these guys. Now, here's the question. If Kevin Van Tiggum says that people's opinions evolve, and this is a writing of his from past, if the conservatives expect NDP supporters, moderates, and the undecideds to take Daniel Smith at her word, that her opinions have changed and her thoughts have evolved, must they not extend the same courtesy to Kevin Van Tiggum and vice versa? Political candidates are asking us this election to forget about things that they've written in past, to assume that their thoughts have evolved and that their current approach to policy will not reflect positions that they've held on the record in past. And that's the conundrum. Well, Ryan, there's a different standard here. If you were asking me about uh, Kevin Van Hagen for premier, I would have a different attitude. I would, I would say it's not as benign. He's running for MLA, okay? He's not, he's not running for premier. I do think that it's a different standard. I also think that taking what Van Tegum said a long time ago, comparing it to today, is a lot different than taking what Danielle Smith said a year ago, a year ago, a year and a half ago, 
and comparing it to today. So I, I think it's a, if you don't mind me saying it, it's, it's apples and oranges. Michael on our live chat says, I'm not really sure what's so controversial about Kevin Van Tiggum's comments. Oil and gas is super important, but there is a negative subculture image for sure. And I think that Michael's right. And to acknowledge that the rest of the country sees Alberta a certain way, uh, to me, is a pretty common sense thing to say. He doesn't call these people degenerates. He doesn't suggest that they should be kicked out of the province or that we could do without them. Uh, so I'm not sure. I know that the UCP needed to find something to fire back on. This one, uh, I mean, if this is the best they've got, they're in trouble. Uh, we're going to, you know, I mean, like you can't really, comp- anyway, I digress. If, if, this, if, if, if this is the best they've got, it's over. Yeah, it is. Uh, we've got two weeks to go, though, still. And, and, and uh, hey, crazier things have happened. This one's going to come down to the wire. How much do you think that this televised debate coming up on Thursday night is going to factor in? I think it's going to be massive. I think it's large. I think uh, Danielle Smith on TV always has the advantage. Uh, she's a tremendous performer. Uh, but I think that uh, Rachel Notley has uh, got to get her into one of those um, Jack Nicholson, uh, you know, Tom Cruise kinds of uh, situations where, you know, Tom Cruise uh, puts it uh, to, to Jack Nicholson about the truth, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and uh, not, not, Notley basically has to uh, make... Uh, Danielle Smith, the, the Jack Nicholson in this debate. Uh, w- will she do that? I don't know. Will she find the perfect opportunity to do that? I don't know. But basically, the truth matters. And she has got to put the premier on the witness stand. She's got to put her in the box and get her to spill her real truth. And if, if she does do it, if the premier does a, a Jack Nicholson uh, then, you know, the, the thing is over. But I, I would say in any debate between Danielle Smith and anyone that I have seen her debate, I would give Danielle Smith the advantage. Yeah, uh, two very skilled orators. And uh, I'll be curious to see, like you said, there's going to be that moment. You know, there's going to be that moment. We don't know what it is yet. We don't know what it's going to be about. Uh, it'll either be one of the party leaders cornering the other and the other has no response, or it'll be that utterance of a phrase that sticks. You, know, you Jim, can't Jim, handle the truth. Well, Jim Prentice, I know math is hard, right? Uh, blew up in his face more than probably anybody thought even in that moment. Yeah, uh, but yeah. that, that kind of characterized, if you look back on that debate between those two and others that were participating, that was the moment. That was the moment of the debate, and that was probably the moment ultimately where the where it was done for the PCs in that election. If, if there if there is no knockout moment, if you know, because everyone knows that Danielle Smith is 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 a hell of a television performer. So if she doesn't uh, tower above Notley in terms of performance, it's, if it's even, okay, if it's even, uh, Notley wins. Yeah, Chuck, it's uh, May Long coming up, which means that we'll talk to you next Tuesday, my man. Tuesday. We'll look forward to yeah. it. All right. All right, buddy. Thanks a lot. You got it. That's Emmy Award winning uh, talk radio legend, RTDNA Lifetime Achievement Award winner, Charles Adler, who joins us the first episode of every week. The truth is out there. The truth is out there. And then he said real truth. We should. That's got to be one of our real talk. Real truth. Real truth. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Glenna on our live chat, by the way, invoking a name that has sort of, I guess, not really been flying under the radar, but kind of sort of David Parker, the founder, the face of this take back Alberta. Movement. We played some video of him last week talking about how 
you know, women are so focused on their careers right now that they're, they're, they're uh, you know, ignoring this anti-humanist movement in politics and women need to be more concerned about growing the human race and staying home and having kids and, and all the stuff you'd kind of expect to hear from like your great, great grandpa who like chain smoked cigarettes, but still lived to 105 and sat around the family table and shared his thoughts on what women should be doing, except for this guy's relatively young. And claims to be basically controlling the premier's office. This is the group that takes credit for getting rid of Jason Kenney. Although maybe Jason Kenney got rid of Jason Kenney. I don't know. Looking back on Kenney's words and warnings, he warned of take back Alberta. He warned of an extremist element within the conservative party that could tear it apart. And he said, quite frankly, he wasn't interested in it. You wonder if maybe he had some insight into where this was all going. And maybe that factored in a bit to his resignation. Glenda says David Parker is a shadowy figure hiding in plain sight. He organized a grassroots movement called Take Back Alberta. Uh, Daniel Smith is set to be his minion. They're the ones that got rid of Kenny, that from Glenna. It's a tough look. Uh, Daniel Smith attended Mr. Parker's wedding in March, right? That's a tough look right now for her, especially considering some of the shit they're trying to pull. Did you see his tweet over the weekend? He, he's deleted it since, uh, but he didn't like that polling from Abacus Data. He didn't like the polling that showed among decided voters the NDP has a 10-point lead, and so he tweeted on May 13th, uh, on Saturday, it is very obvious that David Coletto is lobbying to become the official pollster for the Alberta NDP and thinks he can influence the election with fake data. Keep putting out fake numbers we won't be intimidated immediately strategist Stephen carter who will be joining us on friday tweeted david parker putting himself in legal jeopardy here bad move dave well that tweet was deleted just moments after it was posted which is kind of ironic you know we won't be intimidated and then immediately is intimidated into removing his tweet into pulling it down suggesting that a reputable, legitimate, professional pollster is putting out fake data. That's what you call libel. And uh, there are entire, uh, op I mean, there are significant options available to people like David Coletto to sue someone like David Parker for what he put out there. And by the way, just because you delete a tweet doesn't mean you may not have to pay the price. So that's something we'll keep an eye on as well. This conversation was presented by our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. And we want to remind you about their blizzard menu coming up this summer. Johnny, let's take a look at the summer blizzard treats here. The cotton candy blizzard treat is back. The choco dipped strawberry blizzard treat is back. The Reese's caramel pretzel blizzard treat is back. And who could ignore the s'mores blizzard treat? You know, in our neck of the woods this week, we're looking at temperatures in the high 20s, the low 30s. It's a perfect time to rekindle your love with the DQ Blizzard. And when you're there at the Dairy Queens of Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road, you let them know that Real Talk sent you. The signature stack burgers, they're a great option as well for you to just hammer down on your hunger. I recommend the triple bacon cheeseburger at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. At Local Environmental Services, they invite you to keep it local in communities across Alberta and Saskatchewan. 
They're doing great work helping people drive down the price of their garbage, recycling, and other services while increasing the quality of service. If you're in Edmonton and area, White Court and area, Regina and area, you can check them out online. Get a quote today at localenvironmental.ca. Don't forget, Local Environmental proudly sponsoring trash talk every friday here on the show if you've got something you've just got to get off your chest you can send us an email anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com heck of a rainstorm we saw a little bit of hail late last week it's got someone like us thinking we're in one of these heritage homes johnny the the foundation Mm -hmm. has has seen better days in some of our neighbors' houses, especially. You hear people talking about their sump pumps, crossing their fingers, hoping they're working. Tis the season for basement flooding. If you experience that nightmare, number one, we're sorry to hear it. Number two, make your first call Complete Care Restoration. This is a family-owned business that's been earning the trust of Not just clients, but also insurance companies across the province of Alberta. 7804-540-776 is the number to call or completecarerestoration.ca. Remember, if you experience, heaven forbid, a fire, a flood, if you've got mold or asbestos that needs to be taken care of, chances are if you're going through insurance, your policy lets you choose who does the work. Make your choice. Complete Care Restoration. We're proud to recommend them with two thumbs up wanted to let you know quickly coming up on tomorrow's show rachel gilmore is going to join us she is easily one of the most prominent next gen journalists in canada Uh, she's done a lot of great work over the past number of years and she was curiously let go by global news a short time ago she's going to be joining us in one of her first interviews since that corporate shuffle we're going to get her take on that and on the news landscape right now plus she's dealing with an unbelievable amount of harassment Uh, she's agreed to talk to us about that to give us a sense of what it's like uh, to be a young professional in particular a young woman working in canadian media these days that's rachel gilmore coming up tomorrow on real talk you can subscribe to our email by checking out our website you just go to ryanjesperson.com it's really easy to do you scroll down to the bottom of the page and there it is right there join our newsletter you punch in your email address and then every monday morning first thing when you wake up or you get to the office and you check your email you'll get a sense of the guests that are coming up the week to come on the show as well as some of our best conversations some of the must see must listen interviews from the previous four or five episodes every monday thanks to our friends at kubi renewable energy we take a look at something that restores our faith in humanity we take a look at a silver lining something that fills our buckets it's positive reflections presented by kubi energy and we absolutely love this story this is one that i ripped from my facebook a friend of mine by the name of andrea she says i had to share this exchange that uplifted my faith in humanity yesterday she says the backstory she says my young adult son golfed recently with buddies on a public course and his shot much to his horror this sounds familiar to me ricocheted off a tree and right into a large picture window on a lovely house backing the course the homeowner was reasonable while he listened to the explanation 
He said my son was ultimately responsible for the repair, right? And so he said about receiving quotes to fix the broken glass while my 22-year-old son, recently out of post-secondary, stressed about how he was going to pay for the damages and how that would deplete his finances. Now, we were proud of him that he hadn't run away, that he had done the right thing by admitting fault and collaborating to make it right. Incredibly, the homeowner, who turns out to be a man of great character, told my son yesterday he's sure that there are other people out there that need charity more than he needs his $1,700 window paid for. So he went on to outline that while he didn't know where our son Alex was in life at the moment, he would forgive the debt and leave it up to our son to make a charitable donation of whatever amount he could. But he said he was going to keep the golf ball. Adria says, so three different charities received a nice donation from our son, Alex, yesterday, who I always knew was a man of great character. Andrea says she's feeling blessed. She's encouraging everyone to pay it forward. Hey, in the off chance that you're the homeowner that saw a golf ball shatter your $1,700 window, well played and way to go. And Alex, boy. If there's a story in your orbit that's made your day, we want to hear it. You can send it to us with positive reflections in the subject line. You can send it to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Proudly presented the first episode of every week by our friends at Kubi Renewable Energy. They're hiring right now for solar panel installer jobs in BC and Alberta, and they want you. Coming up later this week, Markham Hislop's going to join us, the publisher of Energy Media. He says he's got his Pulitzer story. We're going to take a look at the Alberta Energy Regulator and back-to-back Real Talk roundtables as we get you set to make an informed decision on Election Day if you're going to be voting right here in Alberta. Make it a great Monday, friends, and thanks for supporting Real Talk. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, Executive Producer Josh Dunford, Technical Producer John Hicks, General Manager Katie Cook-Chivers, Account Coordinator Lawrence Derlego, Human Resources Lena Shepherd, Website Design Mike Johnston, VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandi Morin, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta, on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a relay project. For more, check out ryanjasperson.com.